You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 3rd, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Okay, at long last, after many listener requests, we are finally tackling the subject of hydrogen. As I will explain in the interview, the main reason that it took me so long to get around to this topic is that it's really more like several dozen topics, because the potential applications of hydrogen are so numerous. It really could be involved in nearly every application where we use energy, in theory. The trick is sorting out the theoretical potential applications from the ones where it really has a clear and tangible edge over competing technologies or energy sources. So it takes an enormous amount of research to do the topic justice, and I just never had the time to do it. But then, back in November, Carbon Brief, a UK-based climate and energy think tank, published a huge comprehensive treatment of the subject, and then I knew I had found the right guest to finally do a show on hydrogen. Actually, make that two shows. As our longtime listeners know, about once a year we wind up doing an interview that is really just too long for one show, so we break it into two. And that's what we're doing with this three-hour interview with one of the report's authors, Dr. Simon Evans, the deputy editor and policy editor for Carbon Brief. In these two shows, Simon will share with us their findings from dozens of interviews they conducted with experts who are knowledgeable about hydrogen's potential, as well as dozens of research reports and other resources they consulted over the months of work they put into developing their summary article. So I'm very pleased that he was willing to put even more time into working with me to develop an adaptation of it that was suitable for this podcast. And I should note that in the interest of clarity and trying to reduce the sheer length of the material a bit, we removed the many, many attributions that they painstakingly included in their article, but rest assured that everything we will be discussing in this interview was properly cited and linked. So if you're interested in exploring their sources, just log into our website and check out the show notes for this episode, where you can find the link to their article, as well as all the other other usual resources that we link to in our show notes. In this first part of the interview, we'll talk about the expectations for what I'm calling the hydrogen economy 2.0, to distinguish it from the much-hyped version of a hydrogen economy around 15 years ago, the various projections for hydrogen production and use, the different methods of producing hydrogen and the names we use to refer to them, the state of the global hydrogen business today, the potential roles that hydrogen might play in tackling climate change, and the questions around what hydrogen costs today and may cost in the future. Then in part two of this interview, which we will run as episode 143, we'll talk about the various potential applications of hydrogen sector by sector and use by use, and attempt to start sorting out where hydrogen might really have an edge, and where it might be just a potential application that might never become a commercial reality. But we're not stopping there. In a future episode, after a suitably long break from the topic, we're going to get out a very sharp pencil with yet another hydrogen analyst and really dig into the details of its various applications. So stay tuned for that. 
Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll note a major coal plant that was shut down and may get repurposed as a green hydrogen production facility. We'll consider the many interesting lessons to be learned in the effects that the cold plunge is having on the natural gas and electricity supply systems of Texas. We'll look at the latest update from BNEF on global investment in renewable energy. We'll recognize another fund rejecting further investment in thermal coal. And we'll consider the implications of Royal Dutch Shell saying that it expects its production of oil to fall steadily in the coming years as it pivots to energy transition solutions. And now, part one of our interview with Dr. Simon Evans of Carbon Brief. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Simon, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. Today, we're going to discuss a summary of your research into the potential for hydrogen as a climate solution, which you and your colleague Josh Gabatis published in November 2020 with the title, In-Depth Q&A, Does the World Need Hydrogen to Solve Climate Change? I've been wanting to do a show on hydrogen, and many of our listeners have been asking for one for years, but it's just such a big, sprawling subject, I didn't think I could actually manage to do all the research that would be needed to tackle the subject properly. So then when I saw your article, I just knew immediately that that was the summary I had been waiting for. I mean, you guys did an amazing job of reviewing all the important facets of this massive topic in one package. And no wonder that it clocked in at over 18,000 words. <laughs> so I'm just thrilled that you are willing to take time out from your paternity leave, actually, to come on the show and share it with us. And since you organized your Q&A into a series of questions, I'm going to suggest that we just walk through them. Sound good? That sounds great, Chris. And, you know, absolutely. It was a really, really huge topic to research. I couldn't have done it without Josh's help. Yeah. And, you know, it genuinely took dozens of interviews and months of work to put together. I believe that, which is why yep. I didn't do it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's just start with the very basics. What is hydrogen and how could it help tackle climate change? Sure. Okay. So hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. It's really explosive and it has a lot of energy per unit of weight, so much more than fossil fuels. And that's why it's commonly used for rockets. And actually, pretty much, you know, not just rockets, but pretty much any application where we currently use fossil fuels, you can do that with hydrogen instead. So surface transport, heat, power, it's good for what people call hard to abate sectors too. So aviation, shipping, industry, you basically can keep on naming sectors. You can use hydrogen for that. Now, obviously you asked, how could it help tackle climate change? And, you know, so why would we substitute fossil fuels, which are cheap and easily available? So at the moment, the world runs on a fossil fuel economy, coal, oil, gas, they make up 80% of our energy needs even today after decades of efforts towards tackling climate change. And obviously that fossil fuel economy is also responsible for the bulk of global greenhouse gas emissions. And as we know, that's a big problem. So if you were to want to tackle that problem and you could substitute hydrogen into each one of those fossil fuel applications that I mentioned, and then instead of a fossil fuel economy, you're running a hydrogen economy instead. And the way that could help us to reach our climate goals is because you can make hydrogen from zero carbon sources. And when you burn it, you basically only get water. So you don't get any more CO2, no more warming. Um, problem solved. I mean, at least that's the advert. So there's lots of different versions of how hydrogen could play a role in reaching net zero emissions. We could have a kind of all-encompassing hydrogen economy where we, we literally use it to do everything we currently do with fossil fuels. Or we could end up with a much more kind of selective use where hydrogen fills kind of a series of niches. 
And that would depend how much is available, what does it cost to make, how does it perform relative to the alternative low-carbon solutions that we could use in each potential application. So I heard a really nice line on this the other day, and basically it was comparing hydrogen either to champagne or to table wine. And if hydrogen is like champagne, that means it's going to be expensive to make, it's relatively scarce, we should treat it as a precious resource and only break it out for special occasions. And basically what that means is we would only use it for the hard to abate sectors of the economy. So maybe like industry, aviation, shipping, maybe some seasonal storage in the power sector or filling in gaps between wind and solar output. Now, on the other hand, if hydrogen is like table wine, and that means like cheap and cheerful, there's lots of it about, then we can just flash it around all over the place and we can think about mass market applications. So surface transport, cars, vans, trucks, etc., heating for homes and buildings, you know, lots of other potential areas that we could use it. Now, in terms of where we're going to land on that, you know, is it going to be champagne or table wine? We're going to talk through a lot of the details, I'm sure. But just to emphasize, even if we're in like the lower end deployment, say like the champagne scenario, if I can call it that, there's still this potential for hydrogen to play a hugely significant role in net zero emissions. And if it's going to do that, it would have to dramatically scale up the production and use of the gas. And if I could just interject there for a moment, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I just feel like maybe I should take a minute to explain the chemistry. With fossil fuels, you're dealing with what we call hydrocarbons. And a hydrocarbon is basically a chain of carbon atoms that have a bunch of hydrogen attached to them. That's why we call them hydrocarbons. And when you burn that stuff, the carbon attaches to the oxygen from the air and produces the CO2 and also CO, carbon monoxide. So when we're talking about a hydrogen economy or as a possible replacement for fossil fuels, we're really just taking the carbon out of the equation. We're just dealing with the hydrogen itself. And that's why it's a zero carbon solution because there's no carbon in it to begin with. So I just wanted to interject that in case, you know, people thought there was something mysterious about hydrogen versus hydrocarbons. It's at a chemical level, it's really quite basic. Anyway, as you were saying. Yeah. So let's just talk through briefly why it is that some people are kind of super keen on the hydrogen economy and they get into this idea of an all-encompassing vision where, as I said, hydrogen would end up replacing most of the societal, economic and geopolitical positions now occupied by fossil fuels. So in this vision, you basically take the sun's energy, and that could be in the form of solar radiation through solar panels or wind energy, and you turn that into hydrogen using electrolysis, which is basically you pump an electric current into water and you split it apart into oxygen and hydrogen. So then you make all of this hydrogen and you can transport it around the world, um, put it in ships and pipelines, and it's a globally traded commodity you know, effectively in the same way that we trade hydrocarbons today. And if you do that, you could remake the map of geopolitics. Um, You would no longer rely on fossil fuel exporting nations. And if you're an energy importer, like a Germany or a Japan, that would be great news. You know, I could keep going, but obviously there's lots of buts coming and we're going to get onto those in a minute. But it is pretty easy to see how some people get carried away with this idea of a hydrogen economy. It isn't just, like you say, you could make zero carbon hydrogen, but there's potentially a bunch of other really appealing characteristics too. You could create skilled jobs and new industries. I already mentioned energy security. You can use hydrogen to transport energy from place to place. 
as I said, in a pipeline or a ship, you can also store it much more easily than electricity. And that means you can use it effectively to not only to transport energy between places, but you can transport energy between different times of the year. So you can use it to balance out variable renewables, and you can even turn energy from wind and solar into chemical fuels, whether that's hydrogen itself or what's called sometimes electrofuels derived from hydrogen. It's effectively, you remake a hydrocarbon by taking CO2 from the air and mixing it with the hydrogen. And if you do that, if you make electrofuels, then effectively you can use hydrogen as a way of sector coupling. And that means you're linking together what are currently quite separate parts of the economy, so transport, power, and heat. And that means then you're pushing out your cheap wind and solar electricity into areas they wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Because at the moment, they're kind of segregated, I guess, into the electricity sector. So that's another really appealing idea for the hydrogen economy. Um, obviously, if you start to scratch below the surface, it does get a bit more complicated. And you know, most important thing I should say is it's really abundant, but you can't just dig it out of the ground. It's not like coal. You can't catch it from the air like solar radiation. You have to make it. So it's not an energy source in that sense. And at the moment, almost all of the hydrogen we use comes from fossil fuels. And actually, it's really dirty at the moment. Obviously, it is possible to make clean hydrogen, but we're just not doing that at the moment at scale. Right, exactly. So to go back to the chemical point for a minute, if you have a hydrocarbon, so let's say a very simple molecule like methane, which is a single atom of carbon with four hydrogen atoms attached to it, and you can burn that. If you have a more complex hydrocarbon, like some of the higher order natural gas molecules like butane or propane or whatever, it's the same thing. It's just larger carbon chains. If you're talking about oil, you're talking even larger carbon chains, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 carbons in a chain. With ammonia, which is another one of the hydrogen carriers we're going to talk about in a minute, you're using nitrogen, basically, instead of carbon to make NH4. So these are all just simple conversion issues, basically converting energy from one form to another. Hydrogen doesn't exist, as you say, in a free state in the natural world. It's always attached to something. In the case of water, it's attached to oxygen. In the case of hydrocarbon fuels, it's attached to carbon. In the case of ammonia, it's attached to nitrogen. And so you always have to invest some energy to break the hydrogen off of whatever it's attached to and then collect it so that you can use it in these hydrogen applications. So we're going to get into those energy conversion and production issues a little more in a bit. But as you just mentioned, there are these different ways of producing hydrogen. And so we give them different names accordingly. So what are they? Yeah, so I'll come on to that just in one sec. You know, just you talking about all those conversions, it just strikes me. This is another really fundamental thing about the hydrogen economy as an idea is because you're having to make the hydrogen from other sources of energy and because you've got these conversion steps whether it's from methane to hydrogen or whatever it is each of those steps as you say you have to invest some energy and inevitably you build up inefficiencies and inefficiencies means you have to build a bigger energy sector overall which is problematic because we're really up against it in terms of how quickly we need to roll out clean energy to meet net zero goals by 2050. And then on top of that, if you have inefficiencies, that tends to increase costs. Right. So I'm just going to put that out there. I yep. think it's one of the biggest issues around hydrogen, but coming back to the ways that you can make it. So often it's known by different colours. And for the purposes of decarbonisation, the two most prominent colours are green and blue. 
So green hydrogen is generated using electrolysis, typically powered by renewable electricity. And electrolysis, I mentioned this briefly, you basically split water using electricity into hydrogen and oxygen, the component atoms. And the green label sometimes misleadingly applied to hydrogen just from grid electricity. And obviously the grid mix depends from country to country, but it's only as green as, as the grid. So if you have like a 50% gas grid, then it's definitely not zero carbon hydrogen anymore. Actually, that's one of the reasons why some people don't like referring to hydrogen in terms of colours, because green is a bit muddy. Well, also, there aren't really that many fully renewable grids out there yet. So they're... <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, yeah. you can hook up your electrolyzer to make green hydrogen directly from a wind farm, but that's relatively unusual at the moment. Anyway... Some people don't like the colours. We're going to stick with them because they're really widespread and actually it's a useful shorthand. So yeah. just put the caveats there, but mm-hmm. let's carry on. So blue hydrogen, this is where you, you're taking fossil fuels to get your hydrogen and you're capturing the CO2 emissions. So it's still like a low carbon method. It's not zero carbon. Again, we'll come, we'll come back to this. But yeah, so blue hydrogen, it's generally produced by reacting methane with steam which is steam methane reforming. And then you get the stream of CO2 emissions coming off from that and you capture that and you put the CO2 underground and great, you've got clean hydrogen. Although I just would interject there that there's actually very little in the way of actual commercial operation now where any of these things fully capture all the CO2 emissions, right? Yeah, so firstly, green and blue hydrogen they're not really happening on anything like a kind of big scale. Yeah. And then secondly, as you said, CCS, um, carbon capture and storage, is, I haven't counted for a while, but you know, last time I, I remember checking, it was like 20, 30 kind of projects around the world and they're all kind of demonstration. Yeah. Obviously there's the famous kind of boundary dam, coal plant and so on. There's right. been a lot of big failures. Yeah. CCS really hasn't taken off. And if you don't have CCS at scale, you can't have blue hydrogen. Right. So, that's like a prerequisite. Yeah. Okay, so there's a bunch of other methods to make hydrogen. So you can just make it from fossil fuels without bothering to capture the CO2 emissions. So if you just do steam methane reforming, you know, it's actually the most common way of producing hydrogen at the moment. That's called grey hydrogen. You've got black hydrogen, similar idea, but using coal. Um, brown hydrogen, which is using lignite. So brown coal gives you brown hydrogen. And turquoise hydrogen, again, not very common at all, but you basically you're using heat instead of steam. So you're heating up your fossil gas using pyrolysis. And And actually pyrolysis is a process that I've done to turn wood chips into charcoal and gas. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's not kind of funky new chemistry or anything. It's something that people know how to do. And it's just a question of the different costs and, you know, how efficient they are and blah, blah, blah. Right. So there's a bunch of other colours that we should just mention for completeness. So if you're going to make hydrogen from nuclear reactors, now I should say people in the nuclear industry, EDF, Electricity de France, is operating in the UK building Hinkley Point C, and they have plans to build other new nuclear reactors in this country, and they're really interested in making hydrogen on site next to a nuclear reactor. Um, people variously call this like purple, pink, or yellow hydrogen. There doesn't seem to be a consensus. 
Right. So I just wanted to interject that that EDF Mm -hmm. is once again a nuclear fleet operator in France, which is very different from the EDF on this side of the pond, which is the Environmental Defense Fund, which is a major NGO working on climate and environmental issues. Anyway, for those who might get confused. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So it's historically the state-owned electricity company in France. It's still kind of majority public, I think. Yeah. But they have significant operations in the UK. All of the current nuclear reactors in the UK are operated by EDF. Anyway, so EDF and others around the nuclear industry are quite keen on making hydrogen. And they have an argument, which is that if you do, you basically have a lot of waste heat at a nuclear reactor. And typically that just gets pumped into the sea or upper cooling tower and you're wasting it and if you actually use that to do high temperature electrolysis at least on paper that's much more efficient than just your standard electrolysis that you would do with just an electrical current right so they argue that you could do it more cheaply i would say that the international energy agency did a huge report on hydrogen in 2019 and they basically said that this is a much less developed technology and I think one of the big question marks is around how durable the electrolyzers that you would need for that high temperature process. Anyway. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that that's more of an idea than a technology at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay, so let's try and scoot through the rest of it. So there's hydrogen from biomass. As far as I understand, there isn't an agreed color. I remember reading a Twitter thread, there's probably last year sometime, where people were coming up with ideas of what we should call it (laughs) but definitely don't think it got settled (laughs) so that's all the different colors blue and green are the key ones but according to the IEA's report again three quarters of hydrogen production today is just your standard gray hydrogen so that's made from gas with methane reforming and then the last quarter is from coal so black hydrogen it's basically 98 percent dirty hydrogen from fossil fuels with no emissions capture and that's mostly in China. So it's definitely not a clean energy technology in that sense. And there's just a very small fraction, 2% comes from electrolysis. Um, and a lot of that is connected to chloralkali processes where it's used kind of within that process. And less than 1% of current production is genuinely low carbon green or blue supplies. So if we're wanting to use hydrogen as part of net zero, then we've got a long way to go. Now, again, we'll come on to the costs, I'm sure, but in the near term, grey hydrogen, the reason that's the most common, it's the cheapest. So it's going to stay that way for a while. And none of the clean options are kind of cost competitive. And obviously, if we're going to get to net zero with the help of hydrogen, we're going to have to switch away from grey and black towards only using green or blue hydrogen. Right. Okay. So I just want to reinforce what you said there. 98% of all hydrogen produced today is produced from fossil fuels, which generates carbon emissions, and there are no production processes that avoid those emissions that can compete with the processes that do generate carbon emissions. So it makes a lot of sense when carbon pollution doesn't cost anybody anything. (laughs) Absolutely right. And, you know, it's really no better in terms of how we use hydrogen on the consumption side. So virtually all of The stuff that we do make from fossil fuels is used in applications like oil refining, fertilizer production. You know, we're not using it in all of the kind of funky replacing fossil fuel areas that I talked about. We're not heating buildings, we're not driving trucks or generating electricity or any of the other things that proponents of this idea talk about. And obviously the reason for that 
you know, and it's really worth keeping this in mind throughout our discussion today, it's because fossil fuels are cheaper, right? right? So there's no magic here. If hydrogen was cheaper or better in some sense than fossil fuels, we would just use it already. Right. So this grand vision that we're going to have a hydrogen economy to replace the fossil fuel economy, which again mm -hmm. is 80% of primary energy use today, mm -hmm. depends on this notion essentially of going to green or blue hydrogen, which together are less than 1% of all the hydrogen produced today. And mm -hmm. all the hydrogen that we produce today is really a very minuscule amount to begin with. So you're talking a minuscule share of a minuscule amount of energy in the form of hydrogen today that somehow has to grow up and take over 80% of the primary energy supply the way it would currently be constituted in order to achieve this vision, right? So let's talk about the state of the hydrogen economy today. Which countries are currently exploring hydrogen? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. As we reported in episode 131 last September, Swedish utility Vattenfall had offered its youngest and most efficient coal-fired power plant in Germany for retirement under the German Coal Retirement Scheme because it was unprofitable. Apparently, the huge 1.6-gigawatt Moorberg plant in the city of Hamburg, which had only been operating since 2015, was indeed shut down in December 2020. Now, Vattenfall has announced that it is partnering with Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, Shell, and municipal utility Varma Hamburg to work out a plan to convert the site into a hub for hydrogen production using wind and solar power. Details of the plant are few at this point, but the press release did mention a 100-megawatt electrolyzer, which would be one of the largest in Europe, and a so-called green energy hub. The existing transmission connection at the site is a valuable asset that would be repurposed, along with existing port facilities that can be used as an import terminal for ships. The municipal gas network company also intends to expand a hydrogen network in the port within 10 years, and is reportedly working on the necessary distribution infrastructure. 
The partners intend to submit their first outline of the project during the first quarter of this year as part of an application for EU funding. Item 2. A record-breaking freeze gripped the center of North America for about a week in mid-February, plunging many communities, including mine, into record low temperatures. About 800 daily records were set for cold temperatures as Arctic air pushed all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, with some areas experiencing temperatures 50 degrees Fahrenheit below average. The frigid temperatures especially stressed the power grid and gas systems of Texas, where buildings and infrastructure... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.